Hello, and welcome to this Speedlisten installment of the Six Gun Justice Podcast. I'm Richard Prosh. While my saddle pard, Paul Bishop, and I ride the trail together for our longer episodes, Speedlistens are occasional short podcast installments wherein we ride solo. Today I'm tuning in to a short-lived mid-1990s Western TV show that rescued me from real life and reminded me about my personal library and its many rabbit holes into the past. I'm talking about The Lazarus Man. With the critical and financial success of late 80s and early 1990s Western films like Dances with Wolves, Tombstone, and Wyatt Earp, television as ever emulated the big screen by mounting up a saddle to throw in with a posse in search of ratings. Lonesome Dove, The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., Legend, and a slew of Louis L'Amour adaptations for cable giant TNT starring Tom Selleck and Sam Elliott galloped across the screen. In 1996, I was directly involved in the spiraling plummet and inevitable crash of the comic book industry, having co-written and drawn a comic strip for the CBG newspaper, published and distributed a bi-monthly 32-page comic of my own, and contributed to dozens of other comics and industry-related publications, my financial life was starting to look as grim and gritty as the pop culture landscape of the day. Having had my fill of superheroics and indie comics that were, as one fellow described them, mean, vicious, and funny as hell, they weren't, I turned to the staid and resolute tomes of Western history on my shelf and the gold metal paperbacks my grandpa had loaned me. At that same time, Riding the wind from the 100th meridian, those Western TV shows came thundering through my coaxial cable. When The Lazarus Man debuted on the cable network TNT, I was hooked by episode one and eagerly awaited each installment. The show was a breath of fresh air for me at a time when I desperately needed it. Already familiar with star Robert Urich, from old favorites Vegas and Spencer for Hire, The Lazarus Man felt like a natural evolution of those shows, but with a more seasoned Yurik at the helm, and a season-long story arc, something we've come to expect in almost all TV shows today. Each episode began with Yurik's voiceover, explaining the show's premise and title. Something has happened to me which I do not understand. All I know for certain is I am alive. How I got here, who I am, I do not know, but I must have seen or done something. Something terrible to be buried alive, to be left for dead. I can remember nothing of my life, my friends, or my enemies, but the key to my identity lies somewhere out there. I will search until I find the man I was and hope to be again. The first episode shows Yurik clawing his way out of a shallow Texas grave outside the town of San Sebastian. Unable to remember who he is or anything about his life, he calls himself Lazarus after the biblical man who was raised from the dead. It is the fall of 1865. Lazarus is wearing a Confederate uniform and carrying a U.S. Army revolver. His one haunted memory is of being attacked by a man wearing a derby. Throughout the season's adventures, and as Lazarus gets closer to finding out who and what he was, loose threads begin to weave their way into a complex tapestry involving the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Now, in 1996, I knew a little bit about the Baltimore plot, but had nary a clue about John Wilkes Booth's conspiracy. The Baltimore plot, an alleged conspiracy to assassinate President-elect Lincoln en route to his inauguration, occurred in February 1861. Lincoln boarded an eastbound train for a whistle-stop tour of 70 towns and cities with famed detective agency founder Alan Pinkerton, hired by railroad officials to keep an eye on things around Baltimore. Pinkerton was convinced an attempt would be made on the president's life in the city and tried to persuade Lincoln to cancel his stop at Harrisburg, Pennsylvania and proceed secretly through Baltimore. 
an infamous skirmish between Pinkerton and Lincoln's friend Ward Hill Lehman over the president's protection has Lehman offering Lincoln a revolver and Bowie knife, with Pinkerton arguing he would not for the world have it said Mr. Lincoln had to enter the national capital armed. According to Pinkerton, the assassination attempt was to take place on February 23rd at the President Street train station in Baltimore when Lincoln changed cars. A horde of knife-wielding assassins supposedly lurked in the crowd of well-wishers, and so the stop had to be avoided. Leaving Harrisburg on a special train that arrived secretly in Baltimore in the middle of the night on the 22nd, Lincoln passed through the city, and when his official car arrived the next afternoon on the 23rd at the President Street station, the crowd learned the president had already moved on. In 1951, MGM released a fictional recreation of that alleged plot against Lincoln, called The Tall Target. Its story generally follows what is known about the Baltimore plot, with a few differences. Instead of Pinkerton, it's an NYPD detective named John Kennedy, played by Dick Powell, who learns about the conspiracy and then boards the train, hoping to discover whether any of the plotters are on board before they reach Baltimore. Today, some scholars debate whether there even was an actual plot to kill Lincoln, and if the Baltimore plot was a series of wrong assumptions, half-truths, and hearsay. Four years later, John Wilkes Booth's plan was more assuredly real. Was that what Lazarus was involved with on the television show? As the episodes progress, Lazarus meets people who still want to kill him and begins to regain fragments of memory about the night President Lincoln was killed and the possibility he was in on the plot. At the same time, I was reading from the history books on my shelf about Booth's conspiracy plotting with his cohorts at first to kidnap Lincoln, but by April of 1865, agreeing to murder him, as well as the Vice President Andrew Johnson and Secretary of State Seward. By Good Friday, April 14th, though Lee had already surrendered to the Union Army four days before, Booth believed that the Civil War remained unresolved because the Confederate Army of General Joseph E. Johnston continued to fight. He visited Ford's theater that morning to pick up his mail and was informed that President and Mrs. Lincoln would be at the showing of Our American Cousin that evening. Booth informed his co-conspirators and made plans with a local livery stable owner for the getaway horses. I wondered how Lazarus might be entangled with such a conspiracy. Spoiler warning, if you're interested in seeing the show with no secrets revealed, skip the next couple minutes and please join me for the wrap. Near the end of the series, Lazarus is revealed to be James Cathcart, a captain in the U.S. Army and a member of President Abraham Lincoln's personal bodyguard detail. The memories plaguing him are from the night of April 14th at Ford's Theater. Cathcart realized the president was in danger and ran to stop the assassin, Booth. However, he was attacked from behind by his superior, treasonous Major Talley, who wanted to see Lincoln dead. The first season of The Lazarus Man ranked high enough in the ratings for TNT to order a second season. Urich was a recipient of a Golden Boot Award for his work in Western television series and films, and he certainly fit the genre as well as he did his previous gumshoe roles. 22 episodes were in the first season can, with 20 shows airing, before Castle Rock, the show's production company, unexpectedly pulled the plug. In the summer of 1996, Robert Urich had been diagnosed with synovial cell sarcoma, a rare form of cancer. Despite having TNT's order for the second season in hand, Castle Rock decided not to proceed, and they refused to pay Urich the $1.47 million he was due for a second season. Urich sued for breach of contract, stating he was indeed undergoing treatments, but he had never informed Castle Rock he would be unable to fulfill his performance contract. Yurik persisted in receiving treatment for his illness while working to raise money for cancer research. 
1998, he was declared cancer-free and returned to TV in the UPN series Love Boat The Next Wave. In 2000, he made his Broadway debut as Billy Flynn in the musical Chicago, and his last role was in the NBC sitcom Emerald in 2001. In the autumn of that year, his cancer returned, and he died at age 55. The Lazarus Man had a lot of potential before it was given short shrift by Castle Rock. There was also the interesting parallel of Eurek's own resurrection from his first cancer diagnosis as he truly carried the story of a man raised from the dead on his own shoulders and charisma. In February 2018, The Lazarus Man, the complete series, was finally released on DVD via the Warner Archive Collection. I went on to follow my passion for history and the West by writing and publishing a passel of stories and novels, and part of the credit for that evolution certainly belongs to The Lazarus Man. Thanks to Paul Bishop and David Williams for their contributions to this episode. As always, a hearty thank you to our sponsors, Wolfpack Publishing, author Chris Enns, and the Western Writers of America for making it all possible. And thanks to you for listening to this exclusive Speed Listen installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast. Remember to check out the Six Gun Justice website at www.sixgunjustice.com for regularly updated reviews, articles, and interviews from the best of the Western wordslingers. Till next time, keep the sun at your back and a good book at hand. Let's ride.